It's 836, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. All right, like I was saying a minute ago, I hate to start the program like this because my blood pressure goes through the roof, but we have three big things. This is big thing number one. When are we going to realize that these pieces of garbage, human garbage that are out on the streets, need to be dealt with before they are able to kill the rest of us? All right, here's the story. This is according to the criminal complaint. The guy's name is Anthony Velasquez, lives on North 54th Street. One week ago today, about 3.30 in the afternoon, um, there is a 62-year-old man who is crossing the street at 35th and Mitchell, outside of a school. He's hit and killed by a red Acura sports car driving at a high rate of speed. He's in the street. He's got the right-of-way. The car hits him and speeds off at a high rate of speed. Witnesses see this. Um, guy takes off. Right? What happens is that the Acura, which is driving at a high rate of speed, apparently um, the two, there's two people in it, male and a female. They abandon the car several blocks later, 30th and Mitchell. And the two of them, the male and the female, males driving, females in the passenger seat, they pull the car over to the side of the road and they run away from the car. So they abandon the car. Well, there, there's, there, there's witnesses that see this. For example, they abandon it in front of some woman's house. She says, I hear these tires squealing. I see this car pull up and I see these people run away from, from the car. All right. Now, the car has hit and killed this man. So I don't mean to be graphic at 8.37 in the morning, but there's blood, there's damage, there's all sorts of stuff, okay? They hit and killed this guy at a high rate of speed and ran off. So then the police, they, they start, they, they search the car, all right? So they go into the car, and what they find is that the car is registered to this Anthony Velasquez, all right? They find that on April 15th, now that's three days before this hit and run, he apparently was issued a citation by the uh, by the Wisconsin State Patrol three days before this for operating after suspension. All right, I'll get back to that. But three days earlier, this guy is stopped by the State Patrol and given a ticket for operating after suspension. All right, the police, as they're going through this car, find his name, um, find several papers bearing the name of Sasha Steele, which is the girlfriend. They find two marijuana pipes, no keys in the Acura. All right. So, all right. So now you've got the name. They they know who the car is registered to. Well, about an hour later, this character, Velasquez, walks into the police station and reports the car as as stolen. Says, hey, this car was stolen outside of my house on on 54th Street uh, a while back. So he's lying. He's involved, at least according to the criminal complaint. He's the driver in the hit and run, leaves the man for dead, flees from the car, and then walks in and reports the car as stolen. Of course, this is after that. Well, okay, the police aren't having any of this. According to the story, they go to the guy's house. He is arrested. They find the keys to the car on his person. So they take him down. They throw him in jail. And according, again, to the criminal complaint from the jail, this guy calls his mother and tells his girlfriend not to talk to the police. <laughs> okay, just here, here, don't, don't, don't end up telling them what happened. 
All right, now, according to the criminal complaint, so this is, you know, the guy's dead, pretty much open and shut, it would seem to me. And again, the state has to prove that he's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, but it's a pretty good, I mean, as far as establishing pretty clear evidence of guilt, I think it's strong. Okay, so now he's been charged with two counts. One is the, the felony of hit and run resulting in death, which is a 25-year penalty, and the other is knowingly operating a motor vehicle while suspended causing death, which is a, um, a six-year felony. Now, the interesting provision of the second law is that you know if he's convicted of this, his operating privileges should be revoked, shall be revoked for a period of six months. Okay, all right. Now, well, then, in the criminal complaint, the dazzling, other dazzling detail is even though he was cited for operating while suspended three days before this, um, the police in the complaint say they looked at the Wisconsin Department of Transportation report. The document shows that no Wisconsin driver's license was ever issued to the guy. He never had a driver's license and that his driver's status is suspended, which means that he at some point in time before April 15th had, had probably presumably been stopped by other cops. And uh, again, they had given him citations. Now, I couldn't find anything on this when I did a CCAP search this morning. But but I mean, that's the only way your, your license gets suspended. But it's actually incorrect to say the guy's license was suspended because it appears he never had a Wisconsin driver's license in the first place. Our numbers are 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I know I rail a lot about the, 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 the dangerous driving conditions in the city of Milwaukee and how you take your life in your hands. Many parts of the city where you even just go on the roads or whether you cross the street or things like that. But, but here's at least part of the problem. This guy stopped three days before the hit and run cited for operating while suspended and is still driving the damn car three days later when he blows through the intersection and hits and kills the 62-year-old man. Now, I recognize that you can't throw everybody in prison, even though you might like to, for the people who are repeatedly driving on suspended licenses in an erratic fashion. But this is one of these situations where... Here's what I say. You catch the guy driving without a license. You seize the car. There's no way he should have had that car. You seize the car on the spot. And you don't give the car back until he can come in and demonstrate that he's either going to transfer ownership of the car to somebody else or that he's got his license. If they would have taken the car three days earlier on the spot, a 62-year-old man would be alive. And I use this case as what I think is an example because my guess is crap like this, pardon my French, is going on in the city of Milwaukee on a daily basis. People driving reckless fashions without licenses with impunity after collecting citations. They just don't care. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I understand this is a frustrating thing, but it seems to me it's time to recognize that we have to start protecting the rest of us. You get caught under these circumstances operating without a license, or in this case, never having a license in the first place. You take the car.
414-799-1620 is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you're on the line, please hold on. That's where we start the show. It's 844 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 847 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. I'm sorry. This guy should not have been driving that car a week ago when he hit and killed the 62-year-old man in the intersection. He'd been stopped a couple days earlier driving the same car, doesn't have a valid driver's license, never was issued one in the state of Wisconsin. The light, it says it shows up license suspended. Some people are saying, well, maybe he had one in another state. I don't know. I don't think that's the case. But regardless, it's not, he doesn't have a valid driver's license. Why are we still letting the man drive the car? Three days later, he hits and kills a 62-year-old guy. Dell in West Dallas, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Dell? Um, Hi. Yeah. Hi. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree with everything you're saying. Um, and and what, when's it going to come to a point when we stop giving guys, you know, their, their 13th or 26th driving with, uh, you know, suspended license, and we start just giving them mandatory jail time? Yeah. Yes. I mean, something's yeah. got to be done. The same thing gets done with drinking and driving. When have you ever heard it be the first person's time right. when, yeah. when, when they're drinking and driving and they kill somebody or themselves? Yeah. Right. And, 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 and that's the only – see, my, and my guess is, Dell, that this stuff happens multiple times a day. Uh, probably, I'll bet you dozens of times a day in the city of Milwaukee, but it never makes the news unless and until somebody gets killed by, like I say, a character like this who shouldn't have been behind the wheel in the first place. And then, of course, it's a story. But do we have to wait until somebody dies? Do we have to wait until somebody's father or somebody's spouse or somebody's kids gets killed by a guy like this before we start to do something? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. No. I, I don't know. You know, and, and the drinking and driving thing, we're so laxed on it, too, no. and I don't get it. No, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Okay, I have a text from Kim. The number of unlicensed, revoked, or suspended drivers in the state of Wisconsin is so high that law enforcement does not have the manpower to take every car operated by one of those drivers. See, I, I don't buy that. You call the tow truck, you haul it away. Some days it's as high as one out of every three cars, is what you write, that stopped does not have a licensed driver. Okay, one out of three. I will accept that. That means that one out of three cars is a danger, and those people shouldn't be on the road. Um, who is used to arrest drivers who are suspended or revoked? But that has changed a few years ago. They're now issued citations. Most of the violations don't even have a mandatory court appearance, so the files go fines go unpaid. Absolutely. This is it is. It is is viewed as a joke by the criminal class who make these various decisions. And look, I I understand that maybe you can argue, okay, we suspend too many licenses or things like that for failure to pay fines. Okay, well, uh, that's a different question. If you don't have a valid license, you should not be driving. If you drive without a valid license, there needs to be penalties, and we start with taking the car. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Brian in Milwaukee. Brian, good morning. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking Hi, my Hi, Brian. Um, I got my wife about 10, 15 years ago um, got a ticket for not wearing a seatbelt. And she, I, I know it's no excuse, but she forgot to pay it. And then she was pulled over again for a minor thing like a signal or something not right. working. And they, they, um, they arrested her because um, <laughs> of that. And they took her car. And I was shocked. They had, <laughs> She told me they actually put her in handcuffs. This was in Cutter. They put her in handcuffs, and I. She called me, and I had to um, pay the fine to get her out. So well, sometimes, sometimes they do take 
Well, I well, and and I'm I'm kind of smiling, Brian. I'm I'm sorry it happened to your wife, but I'm thinking, okay, she she fails to pay a small fine for failing to wear a seatbelt. You yeah, have all, the, yeah, right, and, and sure, and, and you have all these other characters who are driving without licenses in the first place, and they're just sent on their merry way to continue driving on lice with on without licenses and hit and kill people. I mean, what's wrong with that picture? I have no idea, but they put her in handcuffs. Um, thanks for the call. No, there, there's something strange there. Okay, um, here we have on our text line. I was hit on the highway from a non-licensed, no-insurance, second-time ticketed driver. It caused $5,000 in car damage and $12,000 in medical bills between my girlfriend and I. His car was towed, but he got it out the next day. And in Wisconsin, if the driver doesn't have car insurance, they have to pay a whopping $20, 20 extra dollars on top of the cho- tow charges. The driver was not arrested. He only received three tickets, suspended license, no insurance, and driving too close for conditions. All right. What is wrong here? Now, look, I know a lot of legislators listen to this program. Here is the message, and let me encourage Republicans and Democrats and the governor to get on board with where we are in this state. That is, there is carnage going on on the highway. You have a large number of people who aren't paying attention. They don't care about the rules. They don't care about having insurance. They don't care about driving without licenses. And they are causing carnage. And I understand you can't catch every one of them and put them in jail. But you can take their cars. If they make the decision that they're going to do this, you take the cars and you don't give them back, like I say, until they show that they've got their license back or that they're transferring ownership. And if it's a bogus transfer of ownership, well, then what happens is you, then you charge them with a felony. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage um, talk and text line. Let's talk to Frank in Fox Point. Frank, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Yes, good morning. How are you this morning, other than this kind of a call and the hackles that raises? I am fine otherwise, except I feel my blood pressure going up. But I knew that was going to happen when I started the show this way. Okay, let me tell you my background. I'm a retired semi-owner-operator. I've got over 3 million miles, 49 states, and the provinces of Canada. It takes time to do this, and I've seen a, a terrible reduction in traffic enforcement. Now, when you talk about taking the person's car away, this is mirroring a law that's like this in the state of California, just to give you one. Certain number of fences and a certain number of time, and they will pull your car, and they will auction it off. Yep. Now, you can go and buy another one, but if you do this again, you lose the car again. So this stands behind what you're saying as one of the good ways to try to correct these kind of people. Well, and there's nothing else you can do because obviously issuing ticket after ticket doesn't change the behavior. So, you you, you know, if you're not going to be able to change the behavior, fine. You say you do this, you're going to lose the car. And and, and so if it's finance, we give it back to the finance company or we sell it or we do whatever. Maybe that would encourage people not to drive without licenses. That's true, it would. But we don't have enough traffic enforcement. If I may just say something, and I won't bring up the characters because we're in trouble, a certain sheriff in the area, when he was put in an office by one of our past attorneys, not attorneys, pardon me, the governor, he was asked by the Milwaukee Journal newspaper about what he would do about traffic enforcement on Milwaukee freeways. I never forget his answer. He views a traffic citation as a form of tax, and he does not run a tax collection agency. (laughs) So the first thing you have to do is stop these people. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, and then you're going to have to relieve them of the vehicle that they're committing all these crimes with. No, Frank, I'm, yes. I'm with, uh, Frank, thanks. I'm, I'm with you entirely. And I mean, and I, 
I mean, we talked the other day about how in the city of Milwaukee, for example, because of the ludicrous we won't chase policy that it was implemented by Tom Barrett and, and Ed Flynn, you have this year what already, first three months of this year, you have over 1,700 or ballpark 1,700 people who have fled from the police knowing that the police will not chase because Milwaukee's policy is you only chase if you have probable cause to believe that the cars that the vehicle's been involved in a in a like in a violent crime if it's been taken into carjacking you chase but what's that's led to is you have these people who are driving without having driver's licenses they're driving without the car being registered they're driving 70 and 80 miles an hour the cops see them and then they just drive off and the cops don't even try to follow them because they know they're not allowed to do this as a result of the policy this is all i hate to use the cliche the chickens coming home to roost but this is the chickens coming home to roost and people are dead this 62-year-old man who died last week crossing the street, 35th and whatever, he would be alive today if, like I say, that this piece of human garbage, if, he, if his car had been taken away three days earlier when he'd been stopped by the state patrol. I'm not criticizing the state patrol. That's all they can pretty much do now. But for the love of God, when are we going to realize that it's time to say – People are out there, they are driving without licenses, they are driving without insurance, and they are putting the rest of us law-abiding citizens in danger, and we got to stop it. Big story number two. And this is one that you may, you may disagree with me on, because actually, I, I saw the story, and I was kind of thinking through my response. And the more I thought through this, my response, the, the more I, I kind of changed my mind. There's a a breaking story about Greenfield High School. And Greenfield High School, the athletic department's been in a bit of controversy because um, their their head coach last season, their head football coach last season, um, was was let go. Um, He had told Channel 6 and other stations that he was forced to resign from his position after leading the team to a 7-4 record in the Woodland East title last season. Um, so he, and there were, there were protests, you know, at the school, you know, why did you fire the coach? He's really popular, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so this has been a controversy. Well, now there's another story uh, emerging. Um, yesterday, the, the Greenfield School District issued a press release saying that it had become aware of efforts to fraudulently enroll students at Greenfield High School. The alleged basis for enrollment was to participate on the football team for next season. And WIAA, which is, of course, the body that regulates you know, uh, high school athletics, um, they have rules that prohibit schools from recruiting students for the sole purpose of athletics. The school said it self-reported the matter to the WIAA and noted that the individual associated with the alleged efforts to fraudulently enroll students is no longer employed by the district. Now, Okay, let's let's clear one thing up. Greenfield is not saying that that's why they got rid of the coach. They they are saying we we they got rid of the coach after a successful season, and um, they're saying we have learned that there was an effort to enroll kids, recruit football players, and we're self-reporting it. And the person who was doing it is no longer employed by the district. They're, they're not saying it was the coach. You, and I don't care one way or the other. Fill in the blank. You know whether that was what led to his dismissal, but. I think there's this interesting larger question. Uh, 
The WIAA says that coaches can't, whether it's basketball, football, whatever, you can't recruit players solely for the purpose of athletics. And, and that's a rule they put on coaches. Here's what, what, my, what I'd like to talk about with you. Why not? I mean, think about the reverse side. You know, between the, the various open enrollment programs or the ability to move into um, you know, move into certain districts that some parents have, um, parents, let's say that you have you have a kid who you think is a really great football player. Okay, this is this is mom and dad. You have a kid who you think is a really great football player, and you think that the program at such and such high school is going to help get your kid to get that college scholarship for, for your kid and maybe, you know, get him started on the way to playing pro ball. I, I understand most kids don't make that far. But mom and dad, if you look at this and you say, hey, th- this, is, this is a school that turns out people who are able to, you know, go on and play in college. Uh, Whitefish Bay Dominican does that for basketball. Okay, it's, it's a basketball power. Mom and dad... If mom and dad say, hey, you know, we, we, we want to send our kid to learn to play basketball, that, that's it. We want him to go to the school that we think is going to develop his talents the best for, for basketball. All right, and they've got the money. They can send the kid to Dominican. I mean, you, you can do that. Um, same thing is true with a lot of these other schools that do really, really well in athletics. Mom and dad could say, all right, let's take advantage. We want our kid to play at whatever school. We want him to play tennis at Nicolet. So we're going to take advantage of open enrollment, and we're going to get him into to Nicolet, for example. Mom and dad can do that. And, and mom and dad can say, okay, our, our number one concern is athletics. You might want to say that's a dumb thing to do, but okay, who, who knows? But if mom and dad can essentially shop around and try to find a school where they want to put athletics first, and they think, hey, this, this kid can play football or baseball or whatever, and I want him to go, and I want him to play or her, want him to play under this coach or in this program or whatever. And if mom and dad can essentially shop to do that, here's my question. Why shouldn't coaches be able to go out and recruit? I mean, what is it? A parent can always say no. But if you have a coach, Greenfield, whatever, don't mean to pick on Greenfield, but let's say the Greenfield Greenfield is trying to build a huge athletic program, okay, and they, they want to be one of the top football schools in the state, and you've got this coach who is really, really good. Just talking in generalities now. I don't know anything about the guy they got rid of. But let's say he's really, really good, you know, and he's out there and he sees some of these players. Is there anything wrong with having a coach actually go out and try to recruit, to call up the mom and dad and say, hey, I'm building this program. I think your child has the ability to be a running back and can get a scholarship to UW, and I would like to help him develop. The rule says no. Does the rule make sense anymore? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, again, I, I understand the rule, but as I try to think this thing through, I guess I don't know that I think that there's anything wrong with allowing coaches to go out and recruit players for sports. If mom and dad can essentially school shop to try to find a place where they can send the kid, if sports is the top priority, why shouldn't the coaches be able to essentially recruit the kids? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. 
I just think this rule is antiquated. And I know you might disagree with me on this, but the more I think about it, why, why not? I mean, if you've got a kid who's an athletic prodigy or whatever, and, you know, is there any reason why coaches shouldn't be able to recruit them at the high school level? What do you think? We discuss next. It's 919. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 922, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, Lucas in the OSHA. Lucas, good morning. Good morning, Jeff. What do you think? Um, you know, I played high school sports my whole life. I went to Hartford High School. Um, I grew up in Neosho. I played baseball for the town that I grew up in, uh, football, basketball. And, you know, we had good teams. We had bad teams growing up. And my older brother went to Hartford High School. My dad played at Hartford. And, you know, we were decent players. But what I look at it as is if you're always or constantly drawing out the best talent from the area to go play for somewhere else that's kind of discouraging to someone mm-hmm. who's not that top tiered athlete thus playing for a team that's mediocre or will never be that mm-hmm. good because they're not good enough to be recruited to go to those top high schools mm-hmm. like Heartland or Catholic Memorial or, or, or teams like that so you always you're always playing for a bad team and you're never going to be that really good team it's but but here's the problem Lucas I understand what you're saying but here's the problem that is effectively going on now. The, the coaches can't recruit, but the moms and dads, between you know open enrollment and you know the, the private schools that are out there, I mean, the mom and dads can essentially do that. So if you've got a if you've got a kid who you think is a, a use football, you've got a kid who you think is a football star, and you know has the potential to you know get a scholarship, and you live. I don't mean to pick on Shorewood, but Shorewood's football team isn't that good. So you know, okay, and, and you yeah. say, hey, I I don't want my kid playing for Shorewood because he's not going to get noticed by the recruiters. I want him playing for fill in the blanks. Mom and dads are are now you know with open enrollment and stuff, they can move the kids around anyway. So I guess my question is, since it's since it's happening on that one side, why shouldn't we let the coaches do it on the flip side? I mean, I guess you could, but I look at it this way. I also did play college football, and I look at it this way. Um, if you come from a small school that is maybe not state-recognized or nationally recognized, if you're good enough, you will be recognized. Right. Yeah, okay. If, if well, and, sure. I mean, thanks. I mean, and I, I, I guess so, but at the same time, there's a – I get it, but there's at the same time, there's a greater chance, I think, that you're going to be recognized if you're – and look, and I'm not arguing that, that academics aren't important, stuff like that, but I'm just taking the example. There's a greater chance if you're coming from a, a football powerhouse where the coaches have regular relationships with, I don't know, the, the recruiters or the college coaches or whatever. If you're playing at one of those places, I got to believe that there's a better chance that you're going to get noticed. And again, if that's not going to be for everybody, but mom and dads are already doing that. I mean, that, that's that's kind of my point. So why? It just seems to me silly not to allow coaches to do the same. Joe on the southwest side. Joe, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi. How you doing, Jeff? Um, no. Absolutely, the, co- or the high school coaches should be able to recruit. Um, because they don't have the power to do that, it has really diminished high school sports in the area in general. Um, parents nowadays are spending thousands of dollars on club teams. And right. This is what's getting club teams and AAU basketball coaches more power than the actual high school coaches. You know, many of the kids decide, well, you know, I don't like that coach, so I'm not going to play high school sports because they can always 
fall back on their club team if they want to. Right, or, or let, let's use the example of, of football. And again, pick a, pick a football school that's no good. And, I, I'm, you know, it just it, it historically isn't any good. And you're sitting there saying, okay, well, why do I – or let's use basketball. Maybe a better example with your club sports things. Okay, the basketball team's not that great. They're going to be losing a lot of games. I would rather play in spots where I'm going to get showcased. I'm going to be seen. I'm going to play with better people. So what you're saying is that that's, that's driving kids, you know, towards those, those – club sports so you know why not allow high school teams to be more competitive if they want yeah exactly and you know i would disagree with your last caller about going to a school where you'll get noticed recruiting nowadays it's all about marketing and getting your son or daughter on the internet Mm -hmm. and making national contact you know gone are the days of hey this kid's going to be discovered right you know that, that just doesn't happen anymore i and i know parents who have moved their kids to certain school districts. There's a girl sure. playing in Wisconsin right now who originally was in South Milwaukee, uh, a girls' fast pitch softball that moved to uh, New Berlin to play on a more powerhouse right. uh, softball team. Be- because uh, the parents figured, okay, she's really, really good. We want her playing with better players. There's more chance that she's going to get noticed. She's going to get better. You know, and maybe that sounds superficial for mom and dad, but they're making the decision, and and they're able to do it because of the open enrollment programs and things like that, or mom and dad move, sure. However, Jeff, um, there is one caveat to that. There are some districts, like I coach girls' fast pitch softball, like in Franklin, where 50 to 60 girls try out. Same thing as Muskego, you know, and there's only one varsity team. Right. So if you go to those schools thinking that your daughter's going to be an all-conference player the freshman year that right. they join, forget it. They're not going to sniff varsity till two, three years. Right. You're better off going to a private school where your daughter will have the ability to play three, four years on varsity and, you know, maybe right. get those accolades if that's what you're trying to get. Oh, oh yeah, and, and thank, see, and again, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not arguing about the wisdom of this. I mean, candidly, putting all... I mean, everybody Everybody looks at their kid playing Little League and thinks, okay, this is going to be the next Robin Yount, or this is going to be the next, you know, what, you know, you know, whatever. And the reality is, that's not what happens for the vast majority of people. So, I mean, I appreciate that Candidly, I, I think it's very short-sighted if this is the decision that the parents make. But parents do make that decisions. I'm just saying, given the fact that you have parents who are looking around and they're able to find, hey, I want to send my kid to this particular school and I can do it because of open enrollment or I can get a scholarship or, or whatever because I think my kid's got the potential to be a great basketball player, it seems to me, given that that is the reality now, it seems to me a little bit silly not to allow the coaches to do that. And I'm getting a number of texts from people saying, well, you know, you, you have to you understand, you do this, you run risks, for example. Maybe you'll have recruiting scandals. Yeah, I get it. It's 935. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Should the city of Milwaukee spend time and money fighting plans for a downtown gentleman's club? Is it worth the battle in your mind? Join the debate with Scafidi and Bill Stett, 1235 this afternoon. My take on that? No, 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 no. You try. Most major cities have these type of places next door to convention centers. Every time the city of Milwaukee says no, they get sued. They've already had to pay out more than a million dollars to this. And this idea that, gee, we've, we've got this the Grand Avenue that we're trying to bring back, and it's going to just kill the development of the Grand Avenue if you have some high-end gentleman's club a couple blocks away. And I don't patronize those places, but, you know, th- that's that's just... 
ridiculous. I think the Grand Avenue needs to concentrate, for example, on you know figuring out what you're going to do with the the wreck that is the Grand Avenue, and worry less about gee, we're going to have a strip club a couple blocks away that's going to attract conventioners. Just saying. Big thing number three. How often do you hear this? Donald Trump backing down. Donald Trump, by the way, is doing exactly the right thing. The government is scheduled to, quote, unquote, run out of money at the end of of the week. We we talked about this a little bit yesterday, and we have been through this. I mean, I, I can remember government shutdowns, you know, going on. Well, I, I vividly remember, like in 1994, 1995, you had the government shutdowns where the government technically runs out of money. Now, the government never really runs out of money because essential services continue to be provided. But what happens is, you know, they run out of funding, and so some federal employees get sent home. They're all, they always get, you know, so they miss three or four days of work. They always get paid. You know, they always get back pay, and it's essentially like a, a really a, a free vacation that's there. Um, the media jumps all over this, and the Republicans, for whatever reason, always seem to, you know, own this particular thing. And then you have the stuff, well, they've had to close the Washington Monument, and these kids were coming on spring break, and look, they haven't been able to see it. It's one story after another like that. Plus, I just think from a stability perspective, especially with a new administration, it sends the wrong message to allow any sort of government shutdown. It is important that we send a message to people in this country and overseas that there is a stable government, that we know what we're doing, and government shutdowns over things like this are, I I think, just, just silly and need to be avoided. Up until last night and today, it looked like we were potentially headed for another government shutdown. Because as a condition, what what Congress wants to do is Congress wants to kind of kick the cat down the road, deal with the budgetary issues as part of the whole budget that's going to come up in the summer or the early fall. All right. What they want to do is they want to have like a stopgap spending bill to continue funding the government at current levels up until that time, which to me, again, makes sense. Deal with it in the context of the entire budget issue. President Trump had been saying, well, look, I want this border wall, and this is on our news. We had Lindsey Graham, who um, I, I think you know had an interesting point. He said, I'm, well, I'm not against a wall. I think it's crazy to build a wall over all 2,200 miles of the border, and I, I agree with him completely. The, the border wall, and I understand that that was a key element of President Trump's campaign, and I understand that he feels that he's got a you know, he's got to deliver on that. But, of course, he also promised that the border wall was going to be paid by Mexico. Well, the border wall also is years away from being built in, in large chunks, because even if you can get the money for it, there's all this litigation. People who live on the border, they're already suing. They're saying, hey, we don't want the government to take our land. They're fighting that. This is not something that all of a sudden you just snap your fingers and three weeks from now, there's going to be a wall that runs 2,200 miles. That's just not the reality. So anyway, what's been going on is President Trump has been saying, all right, in exchange for signing a continuing resolution, which will keep the government operating, I want I want money up front to start building the wall, and I'll get Mexico to pay for this some down or down the line. Trust me. Well, okay, good 
good luck with with that. But he wants the taxpayers to front the money to start the construction. And the Democrats and a lot of Republicans are saying, look, we, you, you know, don't don't hold us hostage. Let's you know, are you really going to shut down the government again? Whatever that means. Are you really going to do this over this money for the border wall? And it looked very much until, like I say yesterday, that President Trump was willing to engage in this game of chicken over the wall and allow the government to shut down unless there was a bunch of money put in up front about this. He has now backed off on that. I mean, the story I'm looking at in the Chicago Tribune, that he's now stopped demanding a down payment for his border wall, and this now clears the way for a bipartisan deal to provide stopgap funding. This, to me... It's good policy, and it's also good politics, because the truth of the matter is, if President Trump had tried to force a government shutdown over this particular issue, I think it would have hurt him, and it would also have hurt Paul Ryan, and it would have hurt congressional Republicans, because it would have showed that we they can't get their act together. And the reality is, this border wall is still so very controversial, especially if you're asking U.S. taxpayers to either pay for or front billions of dollars to do it. It's very controversial in the beginning. It's not like everybody is even united on this, especially it's not like Republicans are united on this. So for President Trump to have forced a showdown on this issue would have been, in my opinion, absolutely crazy. You know, take up the fight for the border wall three or four months from now as part of the overall budget, but don't allow the government to shut down. Big story number three, you don't hear this very often, President Trump backs down, and in doing so, I think he does the right thing. Coming up next, I want to talk about prevailing wage. I will explain it, and then we will discuss whether or not the legislature in Wisconsin is doing the right thing. Stick around. It's 942, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Nine forty six, Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ. New Walkie is hosting Young Professionals Week all over the city and throughout southeastern Wisconsin. Right now, and WTMJ is there. Check out podcasts, photo galleries, and get more information on this business-oriented series online at WTMJ.com. While you're there checking out the podcasts in our mobile app section, uh, you can download podcasts of this show. As a matter of fact, I know lots of people do that because I, I hear about it. couldn't listen to the whole show, but I was out running in the afternoon, and I was able to download the podcast. We make it incredibly easy to do that. All right prevailing wage. Let me just explain it briefly for anybody who heard the term but might not be familiar with it. The the concept of prevailing wage says that for, in the context of what we're talking about, for state construction projects, um, like including state office buildings, University of Wisconsin systems buildings, state highway projects, that taxpayer dollars, when the state bids it out, they have to pay, we the taxpayers, have to pay a prevailing wage, meaning what the average wage is for a particular building contractor in that that county. Prevailing wages are calculated on a county-by-county basis. Um, For example, Dane County last year, the prevailing wage rate for a plumber was 39 bucks an hour for a siding installer it was 17 an hour for a painter it was $26.70 so under prevailing wage if it's a state project you have to pay at least that right that's that's the rule now you might ask how are prevailing age, wage calculated 
And what was the phrase that they used about the first president, Bush, Bush 41, voodoo economics? Or is that what he said about Ronald Reagan? That's what they said about Reagan, right? Voodoo economics. Well, prevailing wage rates are Wisconsin's version of voodoo economics. Because what they do is the state law requires employers to, to complete surveys about, okay, how much are you paying? And then, you know, they take these surveys and they do a couple other things, but but that's a key factor. The problem is there's no penalty for noncompliance. So if the employers don't send in the surveys, okay, nothing happens to them. As a result, um, the return rate is about 20%. <laughs> so, I mean, th- these prevailing wage rates, you might as well just take a dart, you know, and, and throw it at, at the board because it's – I don't know that you ever really get a true and accurate measure of what the real prevailing wage rate is in a county. So you've got that issue. But the larger question becomes whether or not the taxpayers should be essentially guaranteeing that there's going to be certain amounts of money paid for certain jobs. For example, let's say the prevailing wage rate in Dane County for a painter is $26, right? But let's say you've got somebody who is going to bid on a job, runs a painting company, going to bid on a job, and figures, you know what, I've got really good painters, and I can can bid at this job at 20 bucks an hour. I, I can pay my people, you know, whatever. I can bid at $20 an hour, and I can deliver a quality product, and I can make money, and I can save the taxpayers a whole bunch of money. Why is it, then, that the taxpayers should essentially overpay? Think about this when you bid jobs or when, when, around your house. You need a plumber. You, you need a roofer. You know, whatever it's going to be. Okay, you go out, and, and you get bids. You don't ask you don't ask the contractor you know how much are you paying your employees hey i want to do this kitchen remodel you go out you get the bid for the kitchen remodel you check out the contractor's references if you think the person does a good job you know you don't care whether they're paying their flooring installer $25 an hour or $22 an hour or $18 an hour all you care about is that it's a quality job that is done so if you're not going to insist i mean i don't know i've done lots of home improvement projects and i have never ever ever once said to the contractor bidding on the job hey i want to make sure that you're paying your workers $30 an hour i i i don't care what they're paying their workers all i care about is they've got quality workers and they're able to do a quality job um, yesterday, there was hearings in the state Senate. The state Senate is ready to roll back these prevailing wage laws, which go back to the 1930s, when it applies to state projects. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I Prevailing wage laws. I understand that some people say, oh, well, you know, you can't get quality workmanship if you don't pay these. I don't buy that. I understand that some people say, well, this is what we need to do to protect, you know, blue-collar, middle-class union workers. I don't buy that either. I'm all about protecting the taxpayers. To me, it is about value. And this idea of saying, well, if you're going to bid a job, you have to commit to paying $40 an hour for this particular service. Why would you do that? Why would the state do it when you would never do that in your own life? 414-799-1620. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think I think these prevailing wage laws need to go. Last year, the legislature, two years ago, the legislature did away with them when it comes to local governments. Now they're looking at for state projects. I, I think it's time to go.
And again, let let people bid on the merits, investigate it, make sure that you're getting quality workers. But I don't necessarily buy the idea that if you don't say, hey, you got to pay your people thirty five dollars an hour for a public works project, that you're not going to get quality workers. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's nine fifty two. Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ. Nine fifty four. Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ. Randy in Caledonia. Randy, good morning. Morning, Jeff. Um, I'm, I'm definitely for getting rid of uh, prevailing wage. A friend of mine's a contractor, smack contractor. He did my driveway last year, and um, he's telling me that he pays his finishers twenty six to twenty eight dollars an hour when he was working on my job. Right. If they're if they're doing a government job, it's fifty three dollars an hour he has to pay these guys. <laughs> so I called. And they're doing the same work. I mean, right? It's a quality job. They're willing to do it. They do it for you for twenty six. But if it's a state project, they're paying fifty bucks. That's crazy, Randy. It is. So I called Robin Voss about it and talked to him and said, "Robin, I just want you to tell me one thing. Tell me why that's good for the taxpayer." And ten minutes of political speak, and I had zero answers from him. Yeah. And uh, my contractor friend also said his guys don't want to work on on regular jobs. They just want the government jobs because. They don't want to work for twenty eight when they can get fifty three. Well, well, right, and how? I mean, how how crazy is that? No, thanks. Right, that that's sure. I mean, I understand that. Gee, we do Randy's driveway, we get twenty six bucks an hour. But if we do some state project, we get fifty. Um, on our text line, I have this note here. Um, the argument continues to be that you won't get quality work. Well, what are we paying our inspectors and engineers for? There are standards that must be met, and it's up to our city, state, county inspectors to oversee the work and make sure that the done work is done correctly. Absolutely. Let's talk to Mike in Milwaukee. Mike, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, Mike. Uh, you know, when, I was in, when I was in college, I worked for the city of Milwaukee, and um, I came from a hardworking family, so I came in, bust my back, worked real hard, and they were like, whoa, 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 hey, slow down. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't understand the work ethics of slowing down. And let me tell you, I realized what it was, and even more so, more, more so today. So here I am. Asking them, well, why do I got to slow down working? And they're like, well, you know, we got to make sure that this this budget's there later. We don't want any cutbacks. We got to keep things a little fat. Right. But that's kind of their inside thing. Yeah. So it makes complete sense that, you know, they want the taxpayer money. They want to flow in like it's some tree growing in the backyard. But they all have something in common. No business. Well, yeah, and, and no. other people, no, and thanks to call, and other people's money. I mean, that see, that's the standard when I look at these things. Would, would you ever do that in your in your home? Would when you again, okay, what you're, you're building, you're putting on a roof, and you know the roofing contractor. Again, you're not going to ask how much they pay their employees. You want a quality roof, and you want you want it at the best price. I'm not saying you go to the cheapest, the lowest bidder, but that's the way you want this to operate. You know, first of all, you're not going to ask about how much you pay your guys. You're going to say, do you do a quality project? But who in their right mind would say, okay, I'm I'm only giving you. You mean you got quality guys that can do the roofing project for thirty bucks an hour? But here, I'm I'm going to pay you fifty. You would never do that with your own money. Melissa in Heartland. Melissa, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm calling just, a, you know, the prevailing wage thing to me is more so uh, union-based. Uh, these, you know, mm-hmm. companies that are, are coming in, you know, the state. The state, you know, has all the highway projects going on. Right. They got bids from different contractors to come in and complete these projects. They said, this is our budget. This is what we're working with. Give us a bid. 
So just like you said, when you're working on, you know, home remodeling projects, you get bids from different contractors right. and you look at their reputation, you know, what they have to offer, you know, union companies provide, you know, their accident history, hours worked, safety, OSHA. You know, when we're talking about bridges and roads and highways, I think, you know, maintaining safety and, you know, that's, again, where, you know, my, my father was a union worker, you know, retired from the union. My husband's a union worker. Mm-hmm. I think this has more to do with, you know, safety and well, but I, I, and- I, but I mean, here's the problem. <clears throat> See, Melissa, I mean, first of all, hey, thanks for calling. I mean, here's where I disagree with you. I got two things. First of all, um, you know, like, let's take our last caller. Just... Just because it's a union shop, number one, I, I don't think I don't I reject the idea that you know, non-union contractors can't provide quality work and safe work. I, I reject that 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 notion. I mean, I suspect there's probably good union shops and there's bad union shops and there's good union non-union contractors. Not that's again what, what the guy on the text line was making the point about. That's why you have inspectors. But but see, that's even not what prevailing wage is is about. I mean, you could under prevailing wage. You know, you could have a union shop that says, okay, for a private job that we're bidding, we're going to bid $30 an hour. But but because it's a state thing and it's calculated by this cockamamie prevailing wage thing, which is based largely on surveys that, you know, 50, 60, 70 percent of the companies don't even answer. So we have no idea whether it's accurate or not. Um, we're going to charge. It's going to be the same workers. But if they're doing Randy's driveway, they're getting paid $30 an hour. If they're doing a driveway in front of a state office building, they're getting paid $50 an hour. It's the same quality work. This is nothing but a big, sloppy, wet kiss, I think, to some politically connected people. And it's coming at the expense of the taxpayers. It's 959. It's 1009, Jeff Wagner, 620, WTMJ. So, Jane, I just caught this email. I caught a typo in an email I was getting ready to send out, and it could have caused all sorts of issues, perhaps. Oh. Around. No, it, it's <laughs> okay. Uh, you, uh, Uncle Carl, who is the head of our, our, our radio and our, our Packers, you know, Packers and Brewers radio network, and, and just we've been friends for a long time. Um, I, I have to do something at Miller Park tonight, and we, we get parking passes, you know, when we're out there on business, and I have to sure. do something at Miller Park. Um, but this year, because they changed the things, there somewhere there's a parking pass for me, but I haven't picked it up yet. So. I, I just exchanged a couple notes saying, "Hey, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll I'll be out there later on tonight. Um, just tell me where to go, whatever, and I'll I'll get it. You you know, don't don't worry about that." And so th- this is classic Uncle Carl. He's very good. He says, "Jeff, don't worry about it. I'll I'll have it for you after your show today," which is which is very nice. But I so then I I just and again we're we're doing all these things. I, I send him this email back, and I said, "Carl, you don't have to run out there. You're a busy guy." So that was my note. But when I typed this up, I wrote, you don't have to run out there. You're a, now you spell busy, B-U-S-Y. For some reason, I added a T to it. You're a busty guy. <laughs> you know, it's like. That'll get his attention. You know, it, it's like, you're a, it's one of those things. Okay, and I, but I, I actually, I caught it. <laughs> you know, I caught it right before I hit send. It was, it didn't show up, I mean, of course, it doesn't show up in spell check because it's, you know, it's. it's uh, but a I was, word. It, it, it's exactly, it's a word, but I'm like, okay, I, I don't want Uncle Carl getting this note from me saying, hey, you're a busty guy. I, I don't want anybody getting a note from me saying you're a busty whatever. You know, it's just not, that's the type that's of thing. That's yes. Right, that's the type of thing that just gets your drag, your butt dragged down to human resources and stuff. So, um, 
caught myself before I sent that out. So, again, it's um, I, I'm learning my lesson here. Busy, B-U-S-Y. You put the T in there, it changes the meaning entirely. Uh, just saying. You're a busy guy, Uncle Carl. I appreciate that. All right. Um, coming up in about 25 minutes, who is that woman and why was she making an obscene gesture repeatedly at Governor Walker's home? We'll talk about that. But I want to start off. Um, over the years, we have had a series of discussions about four-year-old kindergarten. It used to be that kindergarten was for five-year-olds. And then more and more communities started having either half-day or full-day kindergarten for four-year-olds. The people who argue for this say, well, it's, it's good because it offers more early learning experiences. And I concede that there is some element of that. But let's also be honest. Four-year-old kindergarten is taxpayer-paid-for daycare. I understand, again, why, you know, uh, from a perspective, if you've got a four-year-old and mom works outside the home and dad works outside the home, I understand why you would love to have the community you live in offer either half-day or full-day, you know, four-year-old kindergarten because it then relieves you of having to, to find a preschool that you're paying for out of your pocket. But... And I also can see that there's probably, you can argue about how much of a learning thing there is, but there is probably some learning. But, of course, the flip side is you've got the rest of the taxpayers who have to fund this. But, you know, more and more communities, I think, responding to pressure from parents who like the idea that, hey, you know, we don't have to worry about daycare because if you've got four-year-old kindergarten, whether it's full day or, or half day, you know, this is... This relieves us of having to reach into our own pockets to pay for that. So there is a value, and the politicians have gone along with it. So that's where we are now. We are now moving one step further. New York City, the, the mayor, Bill de Blasio, big lefty, announced yesterday that New York City would offer free, free, full-day preschool to all three-year-olds within four years. He said, this is what we're going to do. He said, look, we're, we're going to build on our, our pre-kindergarten program for four-year-olds, and now we want to go farther. So now it is going to be taxpayer-paid-for preschool for all three-year-olds. Um, New York would be the only the second city in the country to offer free preschool to every three-year-old. Um, they expect that um, they expect in New York there would be about 62,000 children a year who would be eligible for this. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I, I, I understand that there is, there is a value to preschool. There's, there's a socialization value, getting the kids out of the house and having them interact with, with other kids. I appreciate that. And I do appreciate that there is a learning component Probably, you know, to four-year-old kindergarten, it's going to be vary from kid to kid. But I, I appreciate that there might be some learning component. And maybe, in theory, there might be some learning component to three-year-old kindergarten or preschool. But let's face it. This, first and foremost, is an entitlement program. It is taxpayer-paid-for daycare for people who have three-year-olds. 
And I don't believe that we should be funding daycare for everybody's kids. All right. Does that make me this evil anti-education guy or just somebody who's saying, hey, look, you know, if you've got kids, you know, you, you have certain responsibilities. And, for example, as somebody who, who doesn't have children, I don't mind supporting school systems. I, I don't. I think it's good. I think it's, it's good as a policy matter. It's good for society. It also, if you live in an area where you've got a good school system, you know, that, that helps keep your housing values up high. I think that's all great. But is there a point where you say, okay, it's really not the taxpayer's responsibility to pay for three-year-old preschool? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you're on the line, please hold on. We discuss next. It's 1018, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ Summerfest has just announced uh, the final main stage headliner at the American Family Insurance Amphitheater. That's no longer, we used to call it the Marcus, but now it's the American Family Insurance Amphitheater. Um, The final headliner, Paul Simon. Very cool. June 30th, Paul Simon, special guest Brandy Carlisle. Um, I, I don't. I'm not sure if I've ever seen Paul Simon. Actually, that came. I, I'm not. I'm not sure what day of the week June 30th is, but um, I, that's that's one that I might be trying to see if I have some contacts that can let me buy tickets from him. Hmm, that's gonna be good. All right. Um, New York has just become the the second city in the country to announce that they are going to be offering three year old preschool at taxpayer expense within the next couple of years. Four year, you know, four kinder kindergarten for four year olds. It's been very, very controversial, but now that's starting. That's the way things go. I, I don't want to be viewed as, again, the, the, the ugly anti-education guy. But you know what? I mean, let's face it. Three-year-old preschool, is that's taxpayer paid for daycare. And I don't think the taxpayer should have to do that. Um, let's start with Lynn in Milwaukee. Lynn, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. I have done the four-year-old kindergarten with my daughter, who was older, I think that's good because it starts them focusing for when they really have to sit down in kindergarten uh-huh. and focus and start learning. Uh, then they open the program for three-year-olds. My son was three at the time. I questioned enrolling them because I think that's just too early. Right. And to me, it was too early. They don't sit long enough to focus. Right. You know, and I think actually it was a little chaotic for the teacher. Sure. Um, yeah. So what you're saying is there really wasn't much of it. Over again, I think it's too soon to be away from mom and dad, Mm -hmm. and mom and dad can sit down with a book and and do that. Right. And again, I I I mean, I just think it's pushing it. Yeah. I mean, they're already going to be in school. How many years? Well, well, exactly. I mean, and 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 look, I understand that there's probably some sort of educational component to it, but at some point in time, you know, these it costs money to do this. And I guess the question becomes, does New York, for example, 62,000 kids, okay, that's going to be a huge dollar uh, amount. So the question becomes, is that the best way to spend money offering what is essentially daycare for, for, for families? And by the way, this, this is open to everybody. So, you know, you could be making, you know, $2 million a year. You could have a net worth of $150 million and, and your kid goes to this that the taxpayers pay. Is that the best way to spend money? I, again, I, I think there is a learning component to it, just like there's a learning component to daycare things. But let's be honest. Three years old, I think this is daycare. Betsy, and, and I don't think that 
you should have to pay that the taxpayers. I think at some point in time you can say, you know, enough is enough. Um, Betsy writes, you touched a nerve with me on this one. As an educator and a mother of three school-aged children, I am completely convinced that K-4 programs are lovely for child care. This is K-4, but completely unnecessary in terms of long-term educational benefits. My husband and I redshirted our oldest child with an August birthday, so he began kindergarten after he turned six. It was wonderful for him. For other children with spring birthdays, we tried in vain to find a half-day K-5 program. Alas, half-day K-5 programs have gone the way of dinosaurs, with five- and six-year-olds being expected to put in a full day. K-4, K-3, no way. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to David in Thienesville. David, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hey, I don't want to talk too much about what Mary said. I think I agree with her to a certain extent. A half-day, four-year, I have a three, a six, and a nine-year-old. Right. Uh, and the uh, the three-year-old, I, you know, preschool should be an elective. The parents think that's what they want to do, because some kids are in daycare anyway. You know, they're away from their parents. Right. So that should be an elective. Half-day, four-year-old, I think, is great to get the kids acclimated. Right. My youngest one wants to get on the bus every day with her sisters, you know, and she can't. So I think if they go to... What New York is doing is crazy. We moved from Chicago, where they had uh, preschool was paid for, taxpayer paid for up until three years ago when we moved out, mm-hmm. and it was subsidized by income. And I think I think that's what'll happen. Um, do you think? All right. Do you think that there is a significant educational component to, uh, we'll call it K three or, or preschool? I mean, do you think at the age of three, kids are able to sit for a half day, and there's significant learning that positions them to do better three or four or five years ago when they get to school? Social acclimation. That's yeah. Yeah. Think social that's the best benefit out, out of preschool. Um, yeah. I mean, no, thanks. I, I agree. I mean, I, I think it, there is this socialization element and i i get I, I get that and there there is a value to it and that's why but i guess my point is i don't think the taxpayer should have to subsidize that even if there you can make an argument that there's pretty much an educational component to anything and at some point in time you have to have a list of priorities and i guess in all honesty i, I think again that the taxpayers in a district have a right to say okay we're, we're gonna we're gonna offer now. I mean, now the debate is in K four. Now K four is pretty much a reality in most districts. We're gonna offer K four, whether it's full day or, or half day. Okay, we're gonna work that out, and then you know you've got the kindergartens and all that. That that's that's okay. I get it. But at some point in time, you know, just because there might be some minimal educational component to something, does that mean that the taxpayers have to? Do we have to pick up, essentially, you know, when the kid, as soon as the kid turns three, then it becomes the taxpayer's responsibility to pick up, again, what I believe are basically the, the daycare costs. Um, on our text line, there are already free programs for those with developmental needs, Head Start and Early Childhood. For others, it would just be free child care. Yeah, that's, I guess, that's the point that I'm trying to make. It's free child care. And I understand why politically you want it. And, look, I have to tell you, I mean, if... If I was uh, if I had a, a three year old and I I understand all the different issues. I mean Hondo, your Hondo Junior is what, two and a half? How, how old is your kid? Two and a half, Hondo Junior? Two okay. Well and, and I mean and I know you have you have daycare that you end up and you know you and 
I'm, I'm sure that you and Mrs. Hondo pay for that daycare. I understand why it would be a huge appeal to say, hey, starting at the age of three, you know, the community I live in is going to now give me this free child care so I don't have to pay for the daycare. I understand the appeal of that. I get why that is popular, but at the same time, I think taxpayers have the right to say enough is enough. And, you know, we'll pick up the tab for four-year-old kindergarten. We'll pick up the tab for kids all the way through high school. There's now efforts afoot to say pick up the tab for people when they're in college. But really, I mean, at some point in time, don't you get to say enough is enough? Ten twenty-seven. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, as the U.S. Senate convenes at the White House for a briefing on North Korea. Do you think it's time for President Trump to send a stronger message to that nation? Steve Scafidi says it's best to pump the brakes on this one. He will explain why today at one thirty-five. All right. Um, news on the trade front. For the last several months, although the story has really just moved to the front burner in the last week or so, you've had this battle between Wisconsin milk providers and Canada. Long story short, what's been happening is um, you have various, various small, particularly small dairy farms in Wisconsin who have been sending some of their excess production, this sort of specialty kind of milk to a processor in Wisconsin that's then been selling it to um, Canada, and it's always been duty-free. Okay, well, Canada has decided to be protectionist. So what Canada has done is it's changed its rules that now essentially makes it unprofitable to import this type of, of milk. And everybody's heard the stories. There's like 70 to 75 dairy farms that are at risk of going out of business, all these small farms, because now they've suddenly lost this market because of Canadian trade policy. You know, Canada says, well, it, this isn't our problem. It's, it's really, there's an oversupply. The U.S. is saturating the market. And if these dairy farmers fail too bad, but we're going to look out for our own dairy farmers, which, okay, they get a chance to do that. But, but there are consequences for actions. And President Trump, who, as a matter of fact, discussed this. I remember I was talking to Governor Walker last week at Insight. I mean, this was one of the issues that they brought up. And I think in response to what the Trump administration is describing as another bad act on the part of the Canadians, what they're announcing today is, okay, fine. If you want to engage in this kind of protectionist action and this trade war, here's what we're going to do. And um, they've apparently reached a preliminary decision to impose a tariff, a 20% tariff on softwood lumber that is being imported from Canada. So the idea is, okay, you know, you're, you're going to essentially try to make it difficult for our dairy farmers to be able to sell their products in Canada because of these trade policies Fine, if that's the way you want to play the game, be prepared. Um, we're going to impose a, a 20% tariff, which um, uh, lumber is a major export of Canada. Sold $5.8 billion in lumber to the United States um, last year, which gives it a, a big big chunk of the U.S. market. Fourth largest export from Canada to the United States after oil, gas, and cars. So... Trump is saying, all right, you want to play this way with dairy? Two can play this way. Um, that's why when you get into trade wars, you really have to be careful. But in this particular one, I say blame Canada. The Canadians started it.
It's 1035, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. As President Trump marks his 100th day in office, join our very own John McCure this Sunday night for a special one-hour in-depth look at the first 100. In addition to getting expert analysis, both locally and national, nationally, John will look back at some of the president's key moments from the first 100 days, including last week's visit to Kenosha. It's the first 100, hosted by our very own John McCure. It is this Sunday at 8 p.m. on 620 WTMJ. All right, Hondo, who's producing the show today and always. People know what Google Earth is. You know, you know what Google Earth is, right? Okay. Well, you say, of course. Well, I'd say, I'm not every, you, you know what Google Earth is, but you're, you know, you're, okay, Google Earth, if you do not know, Google Earth is an app. Um, it was interesting. It's been around for about 13 years now. It was originally developed by the, this software company that was, was hired by the CIA, um, and the company was later acquired by Google. Um, what Google Earth does is it maps the Earth um, with the superimposition of images obtained from satellite imagery, aerial photography, and geographic um, information systems. And so, what you can do is you can you know you can get satellite views of if you want to see what your house looks like, you you can probably get a view of that. They also, what Google Earth also does is they they go out and they have cars that drive through neighborhoods and will take pictures of of your house and then they put it up there. So if you you know if you want to see what your house looks like, you can go to Google Earth and you can put in your address and and it's very likely that your house will be there. It's it's always sort of interesting. I've done this once or twice with my home and and, and you can kind of tell you know when they took the picture. Um, because okay, maybe there was a tree that used to be there, and now the tree is gone, or whatever. But you you can you can map those things out, and and again, the way they get the street level photography is they have cars that just drive very slowly through neighborhoods, and they're taking these pictures of things. It's both interesting and really creepy at the same time. I mean, that's it's just it's kind of I mean, I, I do think it's in some respects, while it's public information, it's kind of creepy that. You know, I I don't know that you know that there's your your home address is just out there for anybody who wants to see it. So, but but that's just me. Well, anyhow, here here is the story. Governor Walker lives in the executive mansion out in in Madison. If you were to go to Google Earth, what happens is if you go to Google Earth, um, the picture that you get outside the mansion is of a woman who is jogging in front of in front of the mansion and the woman is raising her middle fingers at the executive mansion um the way it's described in the story in the badger herald um from a couple months ago birds flipped up high um, this liberal hero has her hands up proud for all Google Earth observers to behold. Um, all right. And so this has been the mystery. Who is the, the jogger that's running past the executive mansion making obscene gestures? And did she know that she was doing this for the benefit of Google Earth? Well, it, it's now apparently mystery solved. Here, here's the deal. Her name is Ruth Smith. 
She was running her regular route from her Tenney Park home through Maple Bluff past the governor's mansion. It was June of 2011. So interestingly, this is still the photo that's up there, but it goes back to June of 2011 during the passionate Act 10 protests. And Smith admits part of her routine was making obscene gestures at the executive residence. She says, I was going to run directly by the mansion. I did make a habit of calling out and expressing my frustration vocally, and I guess also by my gestures. So what this woman was doing is she would, you know, she'd run by and she'd make an obscene gesture at the mansion. She says, one day I'm doing this. I notice a small white car coming towards me with what looked like a tripod and a camera mounted on the top. I thought it was a Google car capturing street cars, street views. And so I decided... I'm going to hold up my gesture a little higher and a little longer. She goes home. She tells her husband the story. Um, She thought, okay, Google is probably going to edit me out. Well, um, they didn't. Early this year, a friend of hers, who's also a runner, posted a story on Facebook about a student from run the student run Badger Herald with the Google Street View image of the woman. Her middle finger extended, her face blurred. Um, says the Badger Herald person's. I wish this was me, but sadly, it's not. The headline was: "Woman gives Governor's Mansion middle finger is crowned hero of Google Earth." She says, "Hey, I didn't even need to read the story. This this Ruth Smith. I knew it was me." Now, she's since moved to Colorado with her husband and two daughters. She works at the Boulder Public Library. Uh, she's like, well, being a children's librarian and having two young kids, what I did was cr- pretty crude, um, um, and it doesn't help anything. But I'm glad to have been the source of this. It's important to have those releases and that kind of laughter during this time of frustration. Um, she is being called an icon you know, for for doing this. All right, I want to open up the phone line. Our numbers are 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, this woman is being viewed as a hero, a, a liberal icon, because she's running past the governor's mansion, and I don't think this was the only time she did it, and, you know, she's making obscene gestures. This is what she does. I yell, and you know, I made an obscene gesture. In this particular case, she made sure it was caught on by the Google thing. So now this is part of, of Google Earth. If this were a conservative running past the White House, for example, during the Obama years and doing the same thing, My guess is that person would not be hailed as a conservative icon, but rather would be denounced as a racist, a Neanderthal, somebody completely out of touch, whatever, an evil person. This is one of these crazy Tea Party people. But when the sides are flipped around, when it's this lady who's doing this to the governor's mansion, well then, okay, she's the hero. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this funny or is this classless? And if it's, I mean, again, it's obviously not illegal, but is it something, is it something that should be encouraged or was this just a no class move by this lady when she did it? 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line, classless or clever? 
1046, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Um, let's see. Stars and Stripes Honor Flight is making a major announcement that's set to impact thousands of Wisconsin veterans. John Mercure has the scoop. Tune in 320 this afternoon during Wisconsin's afternoon news. Um, Beth sends us a text. I've always said the middle finger salute and the F word are meaningless and ignorant. If you feel strongly about something, make your case in an intelligent way. Yes, the the current liberal icon is this woman. If you're just tuning in, um, she's running past the executive mansions several years ago. Um, She doesn't like Scott Walker. She screams at the mansion. She makes obscene gestures. Uh, Apparently, I think she she sees there's a Google Earth car coming. She makes sure it's captured. And now if you go to the executive mansion on Google Earth, you look at it, there's this lady. She's now identified. She's been identified. And she's saying, well, yes, I was just expressing my frustrations about this. I mean, she's a mother of a couple young kids. I mean, really? Lady, you kind of want to say, all right, this is this is the example that you want to set, Luke in Sheboygan. Luke, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning, Jeff. Hi, Luke. What do you it's think? Extremely distasteful. I, you know, any political, you know, whatever party you're with, you know, I don't care. That is just distasteful. It no class. It, no, not at all. I mean, and then disrespectful on top of it. Now all of a sudden you tell you we want to, you know, try to improve our communities and that stuff, and now this is okay. Um, Not at all. Yeah, I mean, right. See, that's. I mean, and I'm. I'm looking at this. Um, you know, um, she says she's not the only person to run by the mansion and flip the bird. Um, she said the real credit goes to those who are fighting Walker's policies and pushing a back that now is playing out on the federal uh, level. Bloody blah, bloody blah, bloody blah. Um, okay, look, look. Here's here's the bottom line. I remember it, it insight. Last week, when I had a chance to sit down with the governor, we were talking about this, and I asked, you know, how about, you know, Act 10? You know, he was telling stories about, for example, how he's out with his kids when he lived in Wauwatosa, and he said it's a Sunday afternoon, it's between church and a late Packer game, we're we're raking leaves, and you have these creeps, yes, and if you did this, you are a creep. You know, he's out there with his kids, driving by and rolling down their windows and making obscene gestures at him. Okay, I, I, look... Is it legal to do that? Yes, it is legal to do that. I'm not arguing that. But, I mean, what a what a bunch of no-class buffoons to do those kind of things. And I would lump this lady into that category for when she did it, you know, in 2011. I mean, and, you know, our, our text line, people making the point I was trying to make as well, um, can you imagine if a white male did this in front of the Obama's home? Reporters and who knows else would be tracking people down. They would be called a racist. They would be called a hate you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and they're right. Ron writes on the text line, her demonstration was classless. I uh, wonder what her parents, neighbors, minister, co-workers, or boss think of this uh, behavior. Well, now I'll tell you what a lot of people think. They say, all right, you know, you're really standing up. You know, you're, you're sending that message to Scott Walker. I'm glad. You should be proud that you ended up doing that. Well, okay, if that's the lesson and that's the example you want to set for your kids, fine, but... You know, I think at some point in time, you know, we, we talk about this discourse and things like that. And and is this the biggest deal in the world? No, but it's a no class move. And I understand this woman becomes the, the liberal icon. That's great. That's great. That's great. But at the same time, I, I think, number one, it's a double standard. And number two, it demonstrates that if this is the best you got, 
that you're going to drive by the governor's house and make obscene gestures, or you're going to jog past the executive mansion and make obscene gestures, and that's what makes you feel good. Well, okay, lady, you go ahead and do it, but maybe what you really need to do is, is figure out how to get a life and also figure out why it is that all right. For example, Scott Walker keeps getting reelected over and over again. Um, just saying. It's 1051, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1054, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Coming up in about 12 minutes, if you decide to go to a place like North Korea... Is it the government's responsibility to bail you out when bad things happen? We will discuss. And then a little bit later on in the 11 o'clock hour, I, I want to talk about the, this inquest that's being done involving the death at the Milwaukee County Jail. Uh, the headline, inmates water cut off for seven days before his death in the Milwaukee County Jail. We will discuss all of that. Um, you know, our WTMJ, we've got the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line, and one of the the, the interesting things to me about the way we've been using this is not only a way to communicate with you know the program and 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 respond to, to things, but also as as a news tip. I'm just looking at the one that just came in. One of our regular listeners, police chase in Glendale, Hampton and Wilson. Hmm, that's kind of right by. I go past that when I go to home. Hampton and Wilson car crash to tree. Three black males got out, ran. Police all over the area, and they're sending pictures of the car. Banged up against the tree. Um, uh, yeah, two blocks north of Hampton on Wilson. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure that that's... Well, I, I understand essentially where that is. So um, you can kind of check that all out. But if you see news breaking, you can actually send us the pictures. We like to uh, we like to do that. Hey, a couple follow-ups. Uh, a couple days ago, we talked about this flap involving Ann Coulter. Ann Coulter is, of course, a conservative columnist... She's, you know, a, a commentator, and I think Ann Coulter is kind of out there. I mean, I, I've, I've always said that. I mean, Ann Coulter, to me, well, she's a flamethrower. I don't know. There are, are some commentators who I, I think aspire to be sort of serious commentators and say things that they, they firmly believe. There are other commentators who say things that are inflammatory, designed to get a reaction. And maybe they believe them, maybe they don't. But but basically what they're trying to do is they're trying to get a reaction. It might be unfair. I've always viewed Ann Coulter in that latter category as somebody who you know, says some stuff that's really out there, but she does it in an effort to try to get attention. Well, anyhow, uh, University of California, Berkeley, this is San Francisco area, that's the home of the so-called free speech movement. Back in the early 1960s, I mean, Berkeley was the liberal bastion where you had all these students that were protesting about, you know, their the rights to you know, speak their mind on campuses and things like that. Um, it, it is interesting how the worm has turned because even at liberal bastions like like University of California, Berkeley, free speech, well, it, it's taken a, a markedly different turn. Ann Coulter was scheduled to speak at the University of California, Berkeley, this either tomorrow or Thursday. I'm scheduled to give a speech. Berkeley said no. 
we're, we're, you're not going to be able to speak here because, at least initially, they said, hey, we're concerned about violence. There's going to be there's going to be protests. We don't think we can guarantee your safety because when we've had other conservative speakers that have been here, um, there's just just people. There's been an outpouring of people, and you know that's. I'm, I'm sorry, but you're not going to be allowed to speak. Well. Um, she had been invited by the college Republicans and it was being paid for by another group. And she said, well, no, I, I, I have a right to speak. I'm going to be there. So what Berkeley said is, well, tell you what, here, we'll, we'll work with you. You can't come on the date you originally scheduled. We'll let you come the following week. We'll let you speak on May 2nd. And May 2nd is, there's no classes. It's like the week classes are over and they're in exams. So, they're doing that. There's less likely to be people there. And they're also saying you can't speak in the evening. You have to. Your speech has to be done by like three o'clock because if you speak later in the day, we're afraid that you're going to draw a bigger crowd of protesters. So we're going to let you do it, but you know it has to be when there's not as many students around, and you know at a time where it's less likely that you draw protesters. To which Ann Coulter says nuts to that. I mean, I've got a contract. I mean, it says this is when I'm supposed to speak. I am going to be there. And Berkeley says, no, you're not. Well, the update to this is that uh, two conservative organizations have now gone to court. They filed a federal lawsuit against the University of California, Berkeley, um, saying that Berkeley is trying to restrict conservative speech on campus. And you know what the truth is? That is precisely what they are trying to do. And this is why this is so frustrating. If Berkeley decided, hey, we want to find somebody from the days of rage, or we want to find somebody who I don't know is just out on parole after blowing up some car and killing some cop in the 60s, or part of the violent weatherman movement, if they wanted to come, they would be embraced by Berkeley. You never, They would never, ever, ever say, here, we're going to put limits on when you can speak and how you can speak. But because it is a conservative activist, rather than being concerned with the crazy snowflakes who will descend on on this and act out in a violent way, whether being concerned about the lawbreakers and arresting them, it's like, oh, we don't want to have this speech. Shame on University of California, Berkeley. I don't know where this lawsuit is going to go, but you know, publicly funded institutions, this idea that we are going to allow the crazy left to censor free speech. And I'm, I'm not really a fan of Ann Coulter. I don't care one way or the other particularly. But I am a fan of saying, hey, you know, equal, equal rights to free speech. And it doesn't just apply to lefties on campus. Or it shouldn't apply to lefties on campus. All right. When we come back after the news, if you go to North Korea and bad things happen, whose fault is it? Stick around. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. North Korea is a rogue regime. The world, in my opinion, would be better off if the dictator that runs North Korea were no longer there. The problem is, you know, North Korea is being propped up by China. And as long as it's being propped up by China and Russia to an extent... Um, they're they're going to continue to be a menace to the world. 
They start off with being a menace to South Korea, but also, you know, this is this is the rogue regime that's trying to develop nuclear capabilities, and so far they've been unsuccessful, but it's one of those things, you only need to figure out how to do it once, and, and then you're set. Or they're doing, like, their, their missile launches, and most of them fail again, but again, all you have to do is figure out how to do it once, then you'll know it moving forward. So it, it is a huge issue to world safety. But we've known that for a long time. And, and what I think President Trump is doing, which is correct, is trying to exert economic pressure through, I mean, right now, I mean, it, it's essentially the Stone Age, from what I understand, living in North Korea, um, because pretty much there's worldwide sanctions. And the only thing continuing to prop up the North Korean regime is that the China is supporting them. So what President Trump is trying to do is in an effort to try to build better relations with China, one of the things he's saying, hey, you could help us with North Korea. And maybe they can, maybe they can't. I, I think that's the appropriate way to go right now. I'm not somebody who's advocating, while I don't think you can ever let them get nuclear capability, and I think if they get to a point where they do develop, for example, missiles that can menace the, the west coast of California or something like that, I, I think that's a, at that point in time, you know, then maybe you have to, become more aggressive militarily but right now it's economic pressures but you've got this unstable crazy crackpot that leads this regime you have americans who are in north korea and what has been happening there have been three americans who have been arrested and tossed into essentially north korean gulags um and you know, you talk about due process in this country. Well, I, I don't think there's any sort of anything that even passes for due process there. I mean, here's what happened um, the other day. Guy's name is Tony Kim. He's 58 years old. He's a Korean-American professor. He was nabbed at the airport after teaching accounting for a month at the University of Science and Technology in North Korea and working on aid and relief programs in North Korea. So he goes there as a visiting professor. He's teaching. He's trying to, you know, get out of Dodge. And he's apparently, you know, at the airport and and he's held. Now, in the past, North Korea has generally quickly released American citizens as detained, um, waiting at least maybe for a U.S. official to come and, and personally get them out. That appears to be changing. The arrest of, of Kim makes him the third American citizen currently detained in North Korea. And while the U.S. government is lobbying for his release, little progress has been made. North Korea is essentially saying, no, we're, we're not going to re- release him. The, um, I guess, allegation is that, well, they're not even really saying why they've d- detained him, um, but... Um, you know, I, I don't think it had anything to do with the university. This is just a guy who I think they decided to to grab. Now, this is not the first person. Like I say, there's three people cur- per- currently being held. There's an American student named Otto Warmbler. Um, he was an undergraduate student from Ohio. He was arrested on January 2nd of 2016 at the airport while visiting the country as a tourist with the Young Pioneer Tour. He was charged with stealing a political sign from a staff-only floor, um, committing a crime against the state, given a one-hour trial last March, um, and now he is being held at at the Gulag. Um, And then... 
There's a third person that has been held um, as well, again, on these kind of like trumped up charges. And there's really not much the U.S. can do. Um, They're working with the Swedish embassy that apparently has relationships with North Korea. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Obviously, the United States should do whatever it possibly can to secure the release of American citizens who have been in North Korea and have been scooped up for apparently no valid purpose. The problem, though, is that given the, the state of relations between you know the United States and North Korea, like I say, there, there's there's huge unless unless you're going to allow these American citizens who've been arrested to be huge trading blocks, there, there's nothing you know there's not a lot that you can do. The relationships could not be worse, and it appears that North Korea is now scooping up American citizens to hold them essentially as hostages. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Obviously, you, you want to try to get these people back, but at the same time, in today's climate, do you take a certain? If you decide that you want to, for example, go to North Korea as a tourist or go as a visiting professor or, or whatever, do you? Is this one where it's assumption of the risk? And do you need to understand, and your family members need to understand, that if you're going to go there, you are putting yourself at substantial risk of having exactly this happen. And that if you do that, there, there's just very there's limitations as to what the government can do. Look, I understand if that was my son or that was my brother who was being held on trumped-up charges, no pun intended, trumped-up charges from a year and a half ago at some North Korean gulag, I would be doing everything I can to want to get him released. So I understand the personal level of this, but at the same time, is it fair to say, what are you thinking when you decide to go to North Korea? And don't you realize that some of these bad things can, in fact, happen to you? And if that does... There's only so much the government can do to get you back. Do you bear some responsibility for making the decision to go into this third world country, into this, uh, again, this banana republic? I mean, do you bear some responsibility yourself? And my answer is, yes, you do. And maybe it's a cautionary note that people need to rethink that decision. 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should American citizens be traveling to North Korea? We discuss next. It's 1116. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 1119. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. The Brewers homestand continues this evening with game two at Cincinnati against Cincinnati. It's at Miller Park. I'm going to be there tonight. Hall of Famer Bob Euchre and Jeff Levering begin our coverage of Brewers Reds at 605 tonight here on WTMJ. Yeah, um, glad to see the St. Louis Cardinals leave town. Glad to see the Cincinnati Reds come to town. Should be a good game. All right. I, I've been saving this particular topic for later on in the program because it is a difficult topic to discuss. But something something went really, really wrong. And I believe that some people need to be held accountable. Um, yesterday, they started the inquest into the death of the guy at the Milwaukee County Jail, Terrell Thomas. Now, here's here's how inquests work. Um, 
Some district attorneys use them, some don't. They are advisory. An inquest is a legal process that allows prosecutors to question witnesses under oath and in front of a jury before they file criminal charges. It's sort of like a grand jury procedure in the federal system, but it's done publicly. What happens then is the jury is then asked to return a unanimous verdict as to whether there's probable cause to charge anybody and what those charges should be. Prosecutors are not required to follow the jury's verdict, um, so they, they can then decide. There's no right there's no right to cross-examine witnesses so this is something that's run exclusively by the prosecutors typically prosecutors in wisconsin use this when they are looking for cover oh how could you say that jeff well that's what they do And, and here's what i mean by that let's say you've got a controversial decision okay what you can do is you you have the inquest And, for example, if the inquest jury comes back and says, we don't believe there's probable cause, then you as the prosecutor are off the hook. Here's the other thing, though. Because this is a show that is exclusively put on by the prosecutor, the prosecutor can kind of steer stuff. So a a good prosecutor can can get whatever result they want out out of the inquest. So a lot of times these inquests are political in order to give cover for the prosecutors. There is another value to the inquest because what you do is you put people under oath and it's a way of getting people on the record if some people don't want to otherwise cooperate. But a lot of prosecutors don't use inquests because they simply say, hey, you know, we, we, we're going to make the decision one way or the other. We don't need an inquest jury to tell us stuff. We'll just decide whether there's a basis to bring charges or, or not. So there's this inquest, which is now going on into the death of this guy, Terrell, Terrell Thomas, at the at the Milwaukee County Jail. He died in April of 2016. So yesterday, the assistant district attorney who's handling this um, made his opening statement to the advisory jury. I want to share with you a portion of the way this is reported in the Journal Sentinel. Terrell Thomas, Terrell Thomas spent seven straight days holed up in a solitary confinement cell with no running water, slowly withering away. Thomas started the week-long stretch at the Milwaukee County Jail belligerent and loud, the result of an untreated mental illness, prosecutors said. But as the days wore on, he grew weak and dehydrated. He lost nearly 35 pounds and turned quiet, never asking for or receiving medical attention. Barely two hours into his eighth day in solitary, jail staff found Thomas, 38, dead on his jail cell floor as a result of profound dehydration. So now they're looking at whether or not any jail staff should be charged criminally with failing to help him. All right. In the opening statement, prosecutors talked about how this happened. The assistant district attorney says surveillance videos show three correction officers cut off the water in Thomas's cell. That was a disciplinary measure after he flooded another cell and never turned it back on. The same officers never documented the water cutoff and never notified supervisors, leaving fellow correction officers in the dark. So the guy is brought in. He's 
mentally ill. He apparently floods one cell by turning on the sink or whatever. They move him to another cell, and they cut off the water. They never turn the water back on. They never tell anybody that the water's been cut off, and nobody realizes this. So the guy goes for eight days without any water. Um, the order to, this is what the DA says, the order to shut off Mr. Thomas's water was highly irregular and contrary to standard operating procedures in the jail. He also um, didn't receive water or other drinks with his food because jail policies cause for in, call for inmates to drink water from their sinks. So they don't give them like a cup of water when they bring him food. You're supposed to drink out of your sink. But the guy couldn't drink out of his sink because there was no water to the, the sink. Um, they say, this is the way the Journal Sentinel reports it, in theory, uh, the guy, Thomas, could have caused a commotion over his lack of water. But the evidence is apparently going to show that his bipolar disorder, which the jail staff knew about, made it apparent he was unable to tell people about his basic needs. He was in jail um, following arrest on charges that he shot a man, drove to the Pottawatomie Casino, fired two rounds inside the building. This was was that guy. Family members say he was in the throes of a um, mental breakdown. And it is unclear about how much correction officials knew about his deteriorating condition. Um, Inmates had told the paper that they complained to the jail staff about his lack of water. All right. Those are are what the state alleges the facts are, are going to be. But you get this the sense of here's what you have going on. You have a guy who's got a mental illness who's brought into the jail. At the beginning, he floods his jail cell by turning on the water. The officers respond by moving him into a different cell, solitary confinement cell, and then shutting off the water. Nobody ever turns the water back on. Nobody ever tells other people that the water has been shut off. The guy's condition deteriorates and deteriorates, and he ends up dead eight of dehydration eight days later. He went for eight days without water. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. He shouldn't have been, he should have not done the things that got him thrown into jail in the first place. You know, shooting the guy, firing shots at the Pottawatomie Casino. All right, so he deserved to be punished. He deserved to be prosecuted. But I have to tell you, I read this description, and I hear about this, and if this is in fact true, I think this is unconscionable. And whether there's criminal charges or whether this is just incredible negligence, I don't know. I mean, I'll let somebody else decide. But something is very, very wrong if this, in fact, happened. And people need to be held accountable. Eight days without water for a guy who is suffering from clearly a mental illness. And I understand he acted out. I mean, it's almost like he got a death sentence for when he was sent to the Milwaukee County Jail. Something is very, very wrong here. Paul in Cedarburg. Paul, you're first. Good morning. Hi, Jeff. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, thanks for shining some light on the story. I didn't really know all the details until the uh, sure. how you just filled us in. But, yeah, complete negligence. It's, it's disgraceful um, that these uh, prison guards or uh, jail staff let this happen. I understand they have... Uh, a lot of different personalities they got to deal with, and most people aren't good people. But this is, I, 
total grounds for uh, some criminal action. It, it, yeah, it is. It is a complete and total disgrace. I mean, I, I look. I understand it's a disciplinary measure. For example, shutting off the water to the cell. I, I get that, but how can you not? tell someone, hey, we've shut off the water to the cell so that, you know, at least at some point in time, somebody decides after a day or two, how can you have somebody in custody for eight days and nobody apparently noticing that this man's lost 35 pounds and he's dehydrating and he's in the throes of this mental illness and you just leave him in solitary confinement? I mean, I disgraceful is the word. I think it's either total incompetence or total uh, disregard for somebody's or, or, or perhaps both. No, thanks for the call. Okay, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, look, I, I understand that we don't have a lot of sympathy in our society for, for prisoners. I, I get it. But at the same time, I do think just because um, – imagine if it was your brother. I mean, imagine if this was some relative of yours who, you know, ends up in this particular situation and they're suffering from mental illness, and you find out that this is apparently what happened, if this is in fact what happened. I mean, is there any excuse for this? Do heads need to roll? 414-799-1620. We pick it up there. Eleven thirty-seven. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Jeff in Fond du Lac. Jeff, good morning. Yeah, good morning, Jeff. Say, um, in regards to this incident, um, I retired. I was a sergeant at the Department of Corrections for a good period of time. I ran the state block, and it was um, we had to deal with a lot of different situations like this. But there's a whole lot of people that are responsible for this guy's death that need to be held accountable. I mean, the lack of communication. First off, if we shut someone's water off due to the situation this gentleman did. There were tags put on the door that everybody knew the water was turned off. Right. And the, and, and the bigger part about this, think about this. This guy's in the cell for seven days, right? Right. He's still using the toilet, right? Okay. Presumably, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. okay. Yeah. And, and you need water to flush the toilet. In that situation, we would turn the water back on, you know, monitor it while he flushed the toilet, or go in, you know, take him out and flush the toilet, and then shut the water back off. But this stems all the way from the top of management down to the people that were on the block. Oh, yeah. See, and and, and then, of course, okay, so the, you, you have three guys that shut the water off and then apparently don't, which which is an extraordinary thing, then don't tell anybody that the water's been shut off. That To your point, nobody notices for a week that the water ha- has, has been shut off. This guy who suffers from a mental illness gets progressively you know, more and more dehydrated, and, and nobody checks on him. Nobody. They apparently, the rules are that you're supposed to take the guy out for recreation for at least one hour a day. That doesn't happen. He, he's just like left in his cell literally to die. And I understand there's not a lot of sympathy for somebody who finds himself in this situation but you wouldn't treat an animal like this you wouldn't when you're when you're mandated by any judge you were a judge to the custody of of whether it's department of corrections or milwaukee county yep you're there your responsibility is to maintain that person's life you're not the judge jury and sure and, and and conviction and not only that a supervisor is one a captain and a lieutenant in a facility where i work that had to be notified if you were going to turn water off and made the determination. They were the ones that made a determination to shut the water off, not right. just general staff. Right. Now, they say, they, you know, they, they say that, I, I think the evidence is going to show that he never 
ask to have the water turned back on. But but he you got a guy who's in the throes of mental illness. I, I mean, I, I don't know that that's the guy that you want to rely on to be the one. To, yeah, yeah, right, right. Now, thanks. I appreciate. And I, I guess that's that's sort of. I understand. Again, I understand we don't have a lot of sympathy for people who are prisoners. I, I and I also I'm one of these guys that from time to time, you know, looks at some of the living conditions and some of the penitent the prisons and stuff, particularly the federal prisons, and goes, huh, you know, this is for some of these guys, it's much better, you know, in prison than it is on the streets. And I also believe me, understand how difficult it is to be a, a prison guard. I mean, I. I understand that. I mean, it's a very, very difficult job. But at the same time, for the love of God, I mean, how can you just let somebody suffering from mental illness die in this fashion and nobody have a clue that this is um, going on? Um, let's see. We have a note here. We put people, and again, I, I, I don't know. The inquest will decide whether it's a basis for criminal charges against anybody in connection with this. That, to me, I don't care whether they issue criminal charges or not. This is a huge, huge screw-up, and I, I think it's deserve, gets, it should get a lot more public attention. I'm on our text line. Jeff, we put people to death in more humane ways than to suffer from dehydration. I know how crappy I feel after being dehydrated from the flu. The three jail members were present when the water was shut off. They should be held accountable. Um, it should have been documented as if it was a disciplinary action. Hmm. Leroy in Milwaukee. Leroy, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, uh, thank you for uh, taking my call. Yes, sir. You know, my concern is this. this. This gentleman was not just deprived of water. He was deprived of food. 35 pounds? In a week, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of weight to shed in eight days. And, I mean, I've, I've, you know, been down to the county jail here. They treat you like crap. And then they ask you, are there any medications you're on? Yeah. So they knew you had mental health issues. Yep. Why didn't they at least get the medication and at least give him water during I, meals or something, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, I, right, right. And they're, I, they're, their explanation is that, well, when, when you've... When you're in, if you're in this solitary thing, they, they don't bring you liquids. You're supposed to drink water out of the sink. But when they apparently served him food, it didn't occur to anybody that the water was turned off so he couldn't drink water. But I, I think you raise an interesting question. The bigger point, the guy was suffering from mental illness. I mean, he's bipolar. He's got issues. Is, how can you just put somebody in a cell and essentially leave him there for a week? Don't you need to have at least somebody take a look at him and say, hey, do we need, like you say, do we need to get him medication? What do we need to do? I mean, this was terrible. This yes, was th- it is very no, that, no, thanks for calling. And again, I, I don't get these emails saying, oh, you're going soft on crime. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm not at all. But, I mean, I'm, I'm reading this, and, and here's, the, here's the thing. And we always used to stress this when I was in law enforcement. It's still, it's still the same. When you deprive somebody of their, their right, their freedom, okay, you, 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 you take responsibility for making sure 
that that they're going to have that, that their health is going to be protected. I mean, when when you take somebody off the street, part of your job is okay. Now, and again, I, I we can argue about hey, you, know, you don't need to be in the Taj Mahal of prisons or things like that. I, I understand all that, but you need to you know you need to take responsibility. And the idea that here we're going to shut off the water to somebody's cell who's mentally ill, and then we're not going to communicate this, and that nobody is going to know that the water has been shut off. That's something that is fundamentally wrong. Is it criminal? I don't know. The inquest jury can decide that. But it's it's wrong, and it's stunning. It is shocking to me that something like this, you know, could could happen. Let's talk to Susan in Glendale. Susan, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Yes. Um, good morning. I, my uh, concern is that mental health people with mental health issues are put in jail. I understand they committed a crime, but a jail cell is not where they belong. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, well, they cannot handle that type of situation. I don't know if they knew the degree. I mean, right. I don't know if they could force him to drink water or not. Well, but he didn't even have the opportunity to do it because they shut off the water. So even if he wanted water, he couldn't have had it. <laughs> right. But, yeah. I mean, they, at, at that point, I don't know yeah. what happened all before that. I mean... He wasn't in that cell, I guess, the whole time from what some of the testimony is saying. But I think as a society, we have to look at where we put mm-hmm. mental health people, people with mental health issues who commit crimes. Right. Well, I, I think that's I mean, thanks. I mean, I think that that's kind of a larger point, um, you know, big picture. But but here it's it's a temporary thing. I mean, it's not like he's go- was going to be at the jail forever. But I do acknowledge that if you have somebody who's got these mental health issues, um, you, you have to be more attuned to that and, you know, maybe making sure that there's a doctor who comes in and checks on him. I mean, I mean, I just I can just imagine they say, oh, well, the guy got quiet after a while. Well, yeah, he, he's starting to get dehydrated and all and, and, and nobody checks on him. Nobody notices. And look, and I, again, I appreciate how difficult it is to work in a jail. You couldn't pay me enough money to do that. But but I, I sit there and think, OK, in a civilized society, how how could this happen? And is it just like a, a system failure? But it seems to me, at least based on the opening statement from the district attorney, that you had a, a lot of rules that were just weren't followed, that were ignored. But I'm, I mean, I'm still – this isn't like, hey, you turned your back, and two hours later the guy took a bed sheet and hung himself. This is somebody who clearly was deteriorating over the better part of a week, and nobody nobody noticed. Bob in Johnson Creek. Bob, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Morning, Jeff. This, this situation is just beyond the pale. Yeah. Uh, and, and particularly in light of the fact that there were numerous in custody deaths this past year. Yeah. And I would hope that the administration and, and, and Sheriff Clark had their arms around this. But I'm doubtful that they do. And particularly in light of the comment that the sheriff recently made, reflecting that on any given day he has a thousand prisoners and he doesn't know their names. Really, right? That, yeah. That's just that's just that, that's just not not right. Well, no, be right because this is again this is this is, something went badly wrong here, and it appears that it appears that department rules were not followed. Number one, and it appears that you know beyond the rules not being followed, there, there's people. It seems to me were. In it, were grossly inattentive at best and criminally negligent at worst. I, I don't know which one, but yeah, this this is the type of thing that I think we should all be outraged by it. And you don't have to have. I have no. I'm I'm not sympathetic to what the guy did that got him put in this situation. But like I say, we don't. 
you know, we, we don't treat animals. If you just left your dog without water for eight days, you know, you, you'd clearly be charged with animal cruelty if the dog died and was dehydrated. Do we, do we give this man, who, this bipolar, this guy who's in jail from bipolar disease, do we treat him, do we treat his life as less worthwhile than somebody's pet? I, I'm not willing to do that. You're absolutely correct, yeah. and the county's going to pay a lot of money. Well, I think if this is, I mean, yeah, there, there's these issues. And again, I don't know if this is an isolated failure or if this is part of a larger systematic thing. And I, I do, I understand that there's not, there's limits as to what you can do. And that's, that's why I said sometimes you get these people who decide they're going to take their lives or whatever. And the truth of the matter is, while they have protocols to try to stop that, sometimes you just can't do that. But that's not what this seems to me. This seems to me to be something that happened over a, an eight-day period from somebody who was mentally ill, and nobody seemed to give a you-know-what about it. And that's, I'm sorry, that's just unacceptable. It's 1147, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Seven fifty one, Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ. Our text line has exploded with this. Carol writes, nobody is mentioning why they turned off the water. He flooded his bed and uh, cell um, for for a couple days in a row. He belonged in the mental unit. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, he, he flooded his cell. That's why they were trying to do that. Um, but again, you, you've got somebody who's mentally ill and acting out. I don't have a problem with shutting off the water as a disciplinary thing, but then. You, you got to check on the guy. Um, all right. We do not have time to talk about this today, but we will talk about it tomorrow. President Trump is talking about various tax relief things, and one of the things he wants to do is lower the corporate tax rate um, from 35% to 15%. And he wants to do that because he thinks it will inspire hiring and things like that. Okay, that, that's, that's fine. But the question becomes, if you lower the corporate tax rate, how, where is the money going to come from to make up the, the difference, unless you're going to have substantial budget cuts? Here is one of the things that they are looking at doing. For many Americans, and I'm lumping myself in this category, one of the principal ways that we save money is by contributing to our 401k plans at work. There's two types of 401k plans. There is the more unusual plan, which is the Roth IRA, which is where you pay taxes on the money when you earn it. You put after-tax money into the Roth IRA, and then it's never taxed again. So it, it just it grows tax-free. Okay. There's the traditional IRA that most people contribute to. And that is pre-tax money goes in. You are allowed to contribute, I think, $18,000 in earned income. And then if you're over 50, you can put in another six this year. So what happens is you get a tax break. Let's say you're going to put $10,000 into your IRA. It reduces your taxable income. Let's say you make sixty grand. All right, and I understand there's all sorts of deductions and things, but just for the sake of simplicity, sixty grand, you contribute ten thousand dollars to your IRA. You don't pay taxes in a current year on that ten thousand dollars. You put it in the IRA and it grows, but it's taxable when you take it out. So the government gets the money at the end. But the incentive for you to save is you get the tax break up front. Trump 
President Trump and Congress is apparently talking about doing away with the pre-tax 401k. So the idea that you could take your deduction up front, you would no longer be allowed to do it. The only things that they would have left is the Roth IRAs. If you were to do that, it would remove one of the major incentives that we have to encourage people to try to save for the retirement. I think this is one of the most irresponsible ideas I have ever heard. Scafidi and Billstead are coming in, so I don't have time to open up the phone lines, but I guarantee you we're going to be talking about this tomorrow. Um, Congress is considering essentially eliminating the pre-tax contributions to your um, 401k plans. Wow.